Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, my name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Gabriel Byrne, who I guess really doesn't need any introduction. He's an amazing actor whose films include Defense of the Realm, Miller's Crossing, Gothic, uh, the TV show Zero Zero Zero, and In Treatment. Um, he's been a producer, a director, a writer, and it's uh, it's as this that we're going to talk today. He's a writer of a memoir called Walking with Ghosts, which has been published in paperback. And I would also recommend very much the audiobook read by um, Gabriel himself. I mean, why would you not want Gabriel Byrne to read you his life story? <laughs> so, of course, you can follow me at Twitter at Dr. John T, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. And if you enjoyed the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, spread the word, comment, do everything you can uh, to get us to as large an audience as possible. I will be very much appreciated. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I'm in London and uh, I'm due to go back down to Wales. We're shooting this afternoon. So, yeah, so we, we filmed up here in London yesterday and... We finished the rest of the film down in um, Newport and Cardiff, so headed down there this afternoon. How does it feel being back in Britain? Do you do you spend much time in Britain? Not really. I mean, I've worked, you know, here over the last couple of years a bit, but I I live mostly now in in the states. But it's always interesting to come back. I mean, I lived here in the 80s and I was just remarking to a friend of mine how much duller London was in those times and much more isolated it felt from the rest of the world. There's a vitality in, 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 the, in London now that there was, there was not there before. I mean, I know there's all kinds of issues, but there's definitely... Um, more life than there than they used to be. It was a very rigid, suspicious kind of society. I remember properly. If you came from outside at all, um, it was very hard to break through that kind of resistance. You were you were coming through as well at the time when the the troubles were you know were were having a big impact on the mainland. 
Yes, it was not a good time to be Irish, for sure. Um, I felt very conscious about the fact that I wasn't from here. And um, I have to say that most people were either wanted to ignore what was going on in the north of Ireland or were tolerant about it. But there was always the possibility that uh, you could come up against the wrong people who would let you know what they felt. Yeah, I remember because I grew up in the north and um, my mum's Irish. My mum's a uh, yes. uh, family from Belfast, Rosaline, she's called. So, so. Right, right. <laughs> Classic Irish name. And, yes. uh, and yeah, going to school in the 80s, I just remember that. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a great time from that point of view I, I loved your book and i you know i don't want to uh, gush too much but i actually read it twice because i read it first time as a book and then i listened to the audio version as well because uh, i thought i've got to prepare for the for the interview so i thought the audio version would be a good opportunity but congratulations on the book it's really it's really great thank you what we do with this podcast as well is what I'm, I'm concentrating very much on people who write about film or, or, or people who write and are in the world of film. Mm-hmm. And I think your book is much more than just a simple memoir. Or some, you know, I've, I've read a lot of actors' autobiographies and, mm-hmm. and I, I, this feels mm-hmm. like it's if you didn't have a, a Hollywood career, I would still want to read this book. Mm. Wow. Okay. That's great. Because it has, it just really has that that quality. Where, how did you? I mean, I know this is also your second book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the first book w- wasn't really a memoir in the in in the strict sense of the word. It was really just a selection of pieces that I'd written for newspapers and radio that they put together and mm. uh, published as a book. So I didn't really consider it to be anything more than just a compilation of stuff. Um, whereas I wanted to approach this book in a more considered way. And I spent quite a bit of time thinking about the structure of it. And of course, memoir, um, to a great extent, is about recalling uh, events in the past. So I, I, I found a structure that I think mimics the way memory works. So you're in the present and then you're in the past and the past and the present are connected in ways that sometimes aren't uh, immediately obvious. I was also uh, very interested in the idea of memory itself and what we remember and what we don't remember. Uh, Sometimes we think we have no uh, recall of something. And then when you really think about it, you find that you have uh, much more recollection than, than you ever thought. That's because I think that memory resides in the unconscious and and so you're making a connection to that part of yourself that's either forgotten or hidden or repressed or uh, ignored um, and I found that the best way to do that was to look at the events of my life for, for, from the point of the senses the, the, the sights the smells the sounds and try to listen to what those senses brought up for me and it really surprised me how detailed my memory actually is incredibly detailed because i did come up as i said i come i came at it from the point of view of the senses but also images as well and i suppose that would connect to the idea of a film which i've always regarded as being primarily about images you know when I think back on the movies that I've that I really like, it, it, it's it's the images from them I remember. I don't really remember a great deal of dialogue, but I remember very powerfully uh, sometimes the the images that stayed in my head. And I think it's true for a lot of people when they recall films, they're recalling images and the the sense around those images. So also in another way, I suppose, the film in its own way mimics memory too. And it uses flashback and it can use um, flash forward and it can, uh, it can be about the present, of course, obviously. But, and I thought that was something that was unique to film. But then again, I started to think about say, The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, which was probably the first road film. Um, And then Don Quixote by Cervantes, which uh, preempted almost in its own way the language of film. 
because what you have there is uh, Cervantes using flashback, using internal monologue. It's a road film. It's a buddy film. It's a love story. And it's about the clash of reality and 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 dream, uh, which I think is something that film does really well it it conjures up this world that's unreal but you somehow feel that it is it is real so uh, Cervantes also had this wonderful uh, unreliable narrator which was himself so he would put at the end of chapters I I heard this story from Don so-and-so who was acquainted with the old knight in his later days which was adding verisimilitude to fiction. So the link between film and literature was something that I was aware of. But I realized that when I wrote this, I had to perhaps use some of the techniques of film and and, and, and novels, but it had to be about, as honestly as I possibly could, about my own uh, life and, and recall and I think you have a choice when you do something like this, much more so than uh, in fiction. In fiction, you have the latitude to an unreined kind of imagination. You can go wherever you want. But in memoir, I think it's a more difficult thing because you're confronted with the absolute truth. Do I tell this or do I not? If it was a work of fiction, you can easily disguise it and farm out thoughts and ideas to various characters but this is about one's own specific recall and what it and and what it means so th- th- that's really what what i was thinking of when i was sat down to write it and of course um i i thought i thought you know there is a connection between my my the world of film for me and the world of of writing um, not just in terms of the structure that I talked about, but um, in terms of getting the audience to see the point you're making through image and through imagination. I don't know if all that makes sense, but the influence of film on my writing w- was big. Yeah, I, 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 that definitely makes sense. I mean, Don Quixote also is sort of dealing with his own sort of interrogating the idea of the self as well isn't he there's the idea of all these fictional you know mm-hmm. his, his head has been turned but you know if you want to carry on the, the cinema uh, parallel by sort of versions of the heroic i felt that your book very much was interrogating the past as much as it was recalling it is that is that fair yes i think that yes it, yes it was um because a lot of the things I dealt with in the book were things that I perhaps had not examined myself. And I thought, uh, well, I reveal myself and make myself vulnerable here if I do reveal them. And that became a crucial question. Do I write the truth or do I skirt around it or ignore it? And um, I felt that by being honest myself, it might actually help me to understand where I'd come from, but also it might help other people to understand themselves as well. Not so much in what I was saying about myself, but that it might start the process for them to say, "Mm, that reminds me when I was, or maybe I didn't, you know, that process of self-examination. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly brave, I think, in that that regard. Um, it, it It doesn't pull any punches. I particularly thought the 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 moment where you telephoned the priest who was mm. responsible for 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 the abuse is mm. is uh, again it's just that stunning interrogation where you're you're asking yourself can I forgive this guy can I not and yeah, yeah absolutely amazing I mean in fact in fact when you do the the when you talked about structure I was also thinking of like how a lot of the chapters seem to be about sort of like a present day trauma, which then sends you back to to sort of examine something in the past. So even if the trauma isn't necessarily related, like um, there's a scene with the, with the earthquake in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and that sort of sends you back once more, not necessarily to obviously find out what caused the earthquake, but, you know, it, it gives an idea of like, okay, the instability of the universe, I guess. Yes, it is about very much so. 
um, and it's it's perceptive of you to notice that because I remember somebody saying to me, well, you know, what's got what's an earthquake got to do with anything in your story? But the earthquake it, in its own strange way was about trust. I could never trust the ground under my feet literally after that earthquake. And in a strange way, after the um, abuse and all that stuff had happened, I couldn't quite trust other people either. So the physical world was something that you couldn't rely on. And yet at the same time, you had to negotiate your way through human beings and to, and to realize that, you know, that this, what had happened to me was, you know, in the big context of how people are, you you couldn't paint everybody with the same with the same brush. But yeah, it was about um, um, it is about uh, the world being utterly unpredictable. That's what that was about. And and also, you know, the the thing of the you know when I thought I was having the heart attack, that's almost like you press a button and it's fast recall. It doesn't have the luxury of saying, oh, yeah, that was a Tuesday. And then I went out and I got the bus. This was fast recall saying, you better recall the events of your life right now because you're not going to be alive tomorrow. What did I do? Did I say, was I that kind of a son? Was I, you know, all those things that came very quickly. And then to realize that it was the man beside me who was dying, who was dead and not me. And you know, the two, the, the themes, I suppose, I was trying to, at this stage of my life, the things that I, that I, um, that, that, that I consider when I think about the past is the notion of time. Mm. Uh, what is time? And it runs through the book, the whole, the whole sub theme in the book, I think is about time. Mm. Like when I was talking about going to the first, like the fairground uh, thing with my father and, um, after all the joy of that day, uh, um, you know, the day beginning with the blue sky and the excitement, it ends with my father saying, we won't be alive in a, th- in a hundred years time. And that's, that, that's the first time I realized about time and death uh, at an eight, at eight, seven or eight years of age, as we all do. We all get that moment where we say, oh, my father's going to die. My mother's going to die. And um, you don't even think about yourself dying, but you think about them dying. And it wasn't that it was a big philosophical, you know, moment on the road to Damascus. It was just like, oh, so that's that's what's going to happen. Um, so time, time is something that... Um, like what, for example, when I met Olivier and I, I didn't know what to say to him, asked him, you know, the stupid question of saying, do you have the, do you have the time, please? And how he dismissed me and said, you know, buy yourself a watch, which I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, that's like, that's harsh, mm. you know, and then thinking, but who am I to be asking Lawrence Olivier for the time? And I upbraided myself, but then he went away and he started to think, obviously, about time. What I had said, you have the time. He took that literally and said, I don't have the time. Mm. And I'm getting to the stage of my life where I don't have time. And he came back with that little sonnet, with that note, which meant that, you know, he had taken my uh, foolish question and turned it into a profound question about his own life. And although I was kind of thrilled to get a note back and a sonnet back from Lawrence Olivier, I now know what he means because I'm at the same age as he as he was. Mm. Um, so, uh, time and mortality and um, the 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 ghosts of people who have gone because we all know we all have ghosts in our lives, whether they're uh, people that we've known and loved or people on the periphery of our lives or even landscapes or events, they're all become part of that ghost, that ghost world. And the ghost and time um, are, in my head, always connected because ghosts seem to occupy this timeless world. And so not to make too heavy weather of it, but that's 
they're, they're the things I was thinking of when I was writing the book. Do you think like the, the actual writing of the book as well is a sort of attempt to sort of control time, sort of put, reclaim things and put things down, and, and then the book exists, you know, it exists solidly, independently of you? Yeah, I think there is. I think anybody who attempts anything, uh, you know, artistically, it, it, it is an effort to to control or at least come some kind of terms with time as you as you say i mean if you make a film it's there you, you've immortalized an experience or a moment in your life uh you have a fictional character that you're playing obviously but you've also immortalized yourself in a strange way even though i don't think of it in in that way but like my grandmother was saying to me you know when we were watching the when we were watching the films she'd say look at that man over there crossing the road in the back of the in the back of the shot i wonder who he was and where he was going and you know did he have a wife and a family and did he have a job so that man crossing the road going about his daily business 70 years ago, crossing from one part of the street to the other, oblivious, was immortalized in that moment. And myself and my grandmother saw that man. I think if somebody paints uh, a picture, takes a photograph, it's a vain attempt to say, I got hold of the moment and I stopped it. And yet at the same time, you know how transient it is too. Coming, trying to come to terms with time itself is like trying to empty the ocean with a fork. You can keep doing it, but you're not going to make much of a difference to the ocean. Yeah. Do you ever, I mean, do you ever watch um, like old films from when you were uh, younger and sort of have a sort of disassociation with yourself, sort of see yourself in that younger version? Uh, when I'm watching movies that I saw as a kid? No. Well, or, or, or your own performances. Oh, yeah. I, I You know, I rarely very, very rarely watch anything I've ever been in. Uh, people say, well, but isn't that your job? But I always say to them, have you ever listened to your own voice on tape? And have you ever seen yourself on video? Mm. The, the presentation of this other self to your current self is something that we all, I think, have an ambivalent attitude to. Some people just can't see it. But there is a moment when, like people will sometimes say, "What you know, what's your favourite film? And my favorite film isn't necessarily the best film. And I always think, where was I emotionally when I was making that film? That's what I, that's what I think. Right. And then I, if I do look at the thing at all, I'll say, well, there's no indication in there, in that scene, that what I was dealing with outside at the time is in there. So I see myself as a person, you know, doing this job called acting. And I think it's the thing that writers often talk about. Um, actors talk about poets. I think the the fact that what you tried to do, you, you didn't succeed at. Mm. Mm. You wanted to do that particular thing, and it didn't turn out to be what you wanted at all. So it has an air of imperfection about it, and you don't want to really confront it by looking at it and examining it. All you can say is, look, I did the best I could at the time. As an actor, I think the difference between writing and acting is that as an actor, you're in control of your own emotions, but you're not in control of the end product. So you've got an editor, you've got a director, you've got, you know, marketing people, you've got so many people who are involved in the final product. Um, if you have a really good director, he can cut a really good film out of performances. But if you have a not good director or a mediocre or a bad director, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to sink with the ship. Right. It's very, very unusual to hammer out something good out of something that is, you know, handled mediocrely by the director or the editor. But writing allows you to, there's nobody between you and the page. So there's a freedom in that. Um, and it's, it requires a different kind of discipline, I think, to write and to act. Like I have no choice in the morning at five o'clock. I have to get up. Mm. Or else, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of dollars are going to be lost. People are not going to work for the day. I have to get up. Whereas as a writer, you don't have to get up. I won that one. (laughs) (laughs) You you can say, "Ah, I'll do it tomorrow or I'll start in the afternoon or whatever. So I often think to myself, I wonder how many films I would have made had it been left to me. Mm. And I wonder how many books I might have written had it been the other way. Um, They're both difficult to do in their own ways. But the difference between acting and writing is that acting, you're finished in eight weeks. 10 weeks, you're done and you're onto something else or you're, you know, not doing anything. Writing, it's brought me into contact with other writers, which is really interesting. And I know. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Understand how tough how dedicated, how disciplined, how lonely the process of sitting down in front of a typewriter or with a pen in your your hand, how difficult that is and how compelled you have to be to keep going. Mm. Mm. Uh, So it gave me tremendous respect. Not that I didn't before. I mean, I've always had enormous respect for people who uh, make a living by putting words together. I've always... uh, really uh, valued that but um, it did give me a realistic uh, appreciation of what it would be like say to say to be a journalist who mm. they say to you okay in two weeks time you have to have this copy in and you've got to put it together and you know hammer it into shape and 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 so forth and you're working to a deadline and as a writer you're doing the same thing there's certainly no real glamour in it from what i could say i think certain kind of there's a certain kind of compulsion to do it and there's a certain satisfaction uh, in completing it but as agnes demille said to uh, what's her name agnes demille to forget who the other woman was the dancer she said, um, it's a great quote. She said, there, uh, for the artist, there is no satisfaction anywhere at any time. Only a kind of queer, divine dissatisfaction that keeps us marching ahead of all the rest. Uh, do not ask whether what you do is good or bad. It is not your job to determine that. Do it, because if you don't do it, the world will not have it. Now that's excellent. That's excellent, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, how well, how long did it take you if this was it was it a compulsion that you had to get out quite quickly or did, was it something that the a project that took years? I think like everybody else, the past is always there. Like even in our brief conversation here, you talked about um, you talked about your mother, your mother's name, Rosaline. And I immediately thought, uh, you know, of the poem by James Clarence Mangan, Oh, my dark Rosaline, do not sigh, do not weep. Um, but there's the past right there in our conversation. You said the troubles, that's the past. It's always there ready to appear. And so, yeah, getting that down, like if I sat down and I said to somebody, here, let me tell you the story of my life. They'd be saying, Jesus Christ, how can I get out of here without offending this bloke? Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you write it down and put it between covers, people say, oh, I'll read that. There is that thing that we all have to scratch our names on the tree, like the tree at Cool Park where 
they all carve their names into the wood. Um, you know, it's a it, it it's a bit like graffiti on the wall. It's Kilroy was here. Yeah. You know, it's a version of that. It's like the funeral director that you quote in the book as well, of talking about the dates and the dash between the dates on the gravestone. Oh, right. That's your yes. life. I thought that was yes. an amazing quotation. That's amazing. Yes, that is your life. And um, yeah, so we all have our own story. and All our stories are extraordinary. There's no such thing as, a, as, as an ordinary story. Mm. And there's no such thing as an ordinary person. Everybody's story is extraordinary. And so I never thought my own story was extraordinary. And, so, and, and, and then I started to think about it and I thought, hmm, you know what? It is a kind of a strange journey to go from rural to rural Ireland in the 50s and early 60s to England at 11 to become a priest, to then become a plumber and, you know, all these things. And then to find myself in Hollywood. I mean, I, like if somebody said, this is going to be your life, I would have said, no, that's, that's, that can never be my life. I'm just a very ordinary kid from a working class background in Dublin. And I'll grow up to be like my father and I'll put my wages on the mantelpiece and my wife will give me back the money for my pint and my cigarettes. And I'll go to football matches and, you know, I'll sit in the pub with my friends. And so, that's the life I saw for myself. Mm. There was nobody who came along and said, you know, maybe you should think about something else. I never had any mentors or adults. I was just thinking that this morning, that the mistakes that I made, um, like there's something poignant in a way about the kind of efforts that you make as a, as a young person to try to get your balance in life. And I was thinking to myself this morning, I remember being in Spain when I was living in Spain, and I got this book by an Irish writer, and it was summertime, and um, uh, it was the north, northwest of Spain. So I was living, very few tourists there, but the beach was absolutely beautiful. I used to go there every day. And I forced myself to read this unreadable novel. Hmm from beginning to end and thought, Jesus Christ, reading is a really boring thing to be doing and books are really boring. I wish somebody had said, no, 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 read that book. Mm. Here, this is a good book to read. Nobody ever gave me that kind of um, direction. And the mistakes I made were my own and the, the path that I took was my own. And I have no idea why I took that path. Do you think maybe it's because because um, you don't have an older sibling, do you? No. Because, I mean, I had an older brother, and it's not like we necessarily agreed with stuff, but you sort of had something to kick against. You had something, well, I don't, I don't like that, so I'll... And so there was always this influence of someone else who was, you know, a couple of years older than me, mm. listening to different music, listening to mm. what, reading, you know. Maybe that would, that sort of, if you, if you miss that, I don't know. I should ask my older brother as well if he if he misses having an older brother. I guess. <laughs> good question. A good question for him, for sure. Um, I don't know. There was an idea that certainly at that time in in Ireland that he, first of all you didn't get above yourself. Secondly, that you weren't entitled to speak your mind about anything. You were told what to do, when to do it, but you were never told why you had to do it. There didn't seem to be any reason to do anything. You just did it. So I'm glad in a way that I had that thing that made me want to push through. Maybe that book now in retrospect is a kind of a, is a metaphor for something of reading something unreadable to, to come say, well, I've got to find better books than this to read. And I've got to find better experiences than just being, you know, waiting for the bus in the, in, on winter mornings going to, you know, going to work as a plumber in the rain and getting on the bus where everybody smoked. And there was obviously some kind of dis dissatisfaction about the inevitability of that kind of a life. But I lived in the theatres and I lived in the cinema. And I think that's what gave me my, my understanding of another world, even though I understood that that world was imaginary. But I remember I'd come out of the cinema and I would desperately want to bring what I had experienced experienced in the film out into the streets but you could never do it mm. 
because mm. you were outside in the streets of Dublin and you had just been robbing a bank in San Francisco with James Coburn. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I always love the thing where I, I used to remember coming out of the... I loved going to sort of an afternoon, late afternoon screening because I loved coming out of the cinema and it being night. And, and oh, sort yeah. of being surprised by it. They're like, whoa, whoa, yes. what happened to the day? <laughs> yes, yes. It, it's, uh, I don't know if people experience that anymore. Well, they certainly haven't in the last couple of years. But this idea of you leave the real world behind at, say, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon and you go into this, into this dark room and you, and, and you are transported to somewhere way, way beyond... The, the place you've just left and you you are bound up in this imaginary world which becomes in its own way more real than imaginary and then you come out and you're confronted by buses and cars and people shouting and it's Dublin and it's raining and you think Christ I wish I wish it could be good. I wish I could meet um, somebody like that girl that was just in that film because the that that they, they, they used to call it the dream palace I, I don't know who invented that expression but you know the, the idea that they would call it a palace and it was the the architecture of the cinema as well it gave an importance to what was being what was being shown there a bit like a church in a mm. way the church had to put up a building that reflected the nobility of its aims and the cinema did something the same and the end results i certainly don't remember being transported in a in a church in the same way as i was transported in a, in, a, in a cinema so it was easy to see in a weird way what what was going to win out it was going to be the cinema right i mean even the chairs you even had like plush red velvet sort of oh yeah chairs that you you'd never yes Yes, uh, Rococo uh, mouldings and, you know, a guy in a, in a uniform with braid on it taking your ticket when you went in and then, um, you know, they'd have another guy inside with a torch to bring you down and show you your, your seat. There was, there was something about the ritual of going into that world uh, that was exciting. And, you know, <clears throat> I think I described uh, in the book um, the smell of smoke and disinfectant. And uh, the, the smell of disinfectant in itself had a magical quality <laughs> to it. You know, you had to save up that money to get in. It wasn't just like you walked in. You had to really get that money together to go. But it was a joy to be able to do that. Whatever you wanted, like mowing people's lawns or going for messages or begging from your parents or stealing it. You had to get that money somehow to go. Who 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 were your favourites when you were when you were young going going to the films? Well, again, because you had no guidance. Um, there were about six cinemas in our locality. The I think we learned in a strange way about the unreliability of of leadership or authority or authority through the trailers mm. uh, and the, what they used to call the folly and uppers in Dublin, where one week you'd have the guy hanging off a cliff and and with one hand, and then it would end. And you think, oh, my God, how is he going to get away from that? And the next week, he wouldn't be over the cliff at all. He'd be punching some other bloke over the cliff. And, and you think, that, that's not what happened last week. Uh, but um, we loved the comedy and violence of the Three Stooges. Mm. And the, the sound effects that their heads made when they were hit. Like, Mo would hit a guy on the head with a hammer. And it would make this metal sound. And like 100 kids would explode into laughter um, when Corley would grab another guy by the nose and, you know, <laughs> you know, it was, so we'd come out, we'd be doing this to each other. Cowboy movies, I suppose, uh, war films. Uh, the only things we couldn't tolerate were um, love stories. Ah, yuck. Who wants them? Who wants them uh, <laughs> kissing and you know w w where they'd all sh we'd all shout together at the same time skip 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 <laughs> where we knew that word from but um, so yeah color the magic of cinema color uh, uh, heightened uh. the heightened color of, 
of the world was like skies were bluer, trees were greener, people were taller. It was um, music played behind people when they said things. Mm. It, it was just a world of pure, of pure magic. Um, the heroes, there was a, an old guy that used to be in those movies. I remember having a big argument one day with a friend of mine and he said, yeah, Audrey Murphy is my favorite actor. Mm. And I said, name isn't Audrey, it's Audie. And he, he was saying, no, it's, I said, Audrey is a girl's name. And, you know, it's Audie. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've mentioned Audie Murphy for 50 years, but there you go. <laughs> but uh, yeah, th- 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 no one wants to find out that John Wayne's called Marion Mitchell. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Must have been a thing about yeah. cowboys in those days. Yeah, they hover up there. Their feminine pasts, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you go, I mean, that's what I, I, I really, uh, there's a phrase that you use in the book as well, where you talk about the theatre of the streets, you know, the, mm-hmm. the voices. And this is one of the reasons I loved listening to the audiobook as well as reading mm-hmm. it in the text, is you really have an ear for those voices. You, there are so many mm-hmm. phrases and a lot of the funny, I mean, I was laughing. Again, I, half of my family's Irish, so yes. we, 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 he, I, I recognised a lot of those cadences and phrases and yes. just the imagery that goes, that goes with it. Yes. Was, that, was that very, I imagine that was kind of very easy to recall because it's sort of built to be remembered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those characters, like Titus the Liar only died about, like 20 years ago mm. and to the day he died he was still lying and it was it was like people would just provoke him into lies they'd say something like oh anybody who's ever played for Ireland at Daily Mail Park would know about don't talk to me about playing for Ireland sure wasn't it and they just like he also used to tell this story about like how he was um how he was he had a little bit of a ball patch on the side of his head and he'd say, how'd you get that ball patch, uh, Titus? He'd say, ah, submarine. <laughs> and he'd never been outside Dublin. But you could sit and listen to this guy all day because he was a master of uh, bullshit and lying and, and making up things. Well, he was easy to, um, to channel. But when I thought about the neighbours, for example, the, the the woman with the false teeth and uh, the elasticated stockings leaning over her gate, I th- and, and, and the woman who had the hoover and would leave the door open so that people would hear opera coming out of her hallway. And then she had her art on the wall just over the new telephone that was locked that nobody could ever use. Her art was the crying boy, you know, with the big tear on him. We all thought, oh. And then all the other women would be saying, yeah, you know, hurling our hoover, out hoover. And then, of course, when the salesman came to my mother's house, she wanted the hoover and she wanted the corpus, just like Mrs. Kelly. But those characters were not difficult to, um, and yet they all have a universality about them. You know, when I thought, Jesus, I've known Mrs. Kelly all my life. Those kinds of people that are, it, it, they mightn't be bragging about their Hoover, but they'd be saying things like, um, yeah, I decided to get a Daimler, you know, because they run like, and you think mm-hmm. that's Kelly bragging about, you know, her Hoover. And I was once in a conversation be, with three very, very, very world famous actors who were having a conversation about what was the best jet to buy. And I just thought to myself, they'd get on well with Mrs. Kelly. (laughs) And they'd get get on well with Titus as well, because he'd say, jet, don't talk to me about jets. (laughs) Absolutely. I've got three. There's a guy in uh, there's a guy in my village. I live in Italy, and uh, this tiny village. And there's this old guy whose nickname is Methuselah. Everybody has a nickname, but his nickname is Methuselah because if he does, if he did everything that he said he did, he'd have to be as old as Methuselah. (laughs) Yeah, but those people are a gift. Yeah, they're an absolute gift because. No television can compare with these people who they're just walking, living, breathing, uh, ever-present characters. Mm. And they're everywhere and they're in every street. Like they're in your village in Italy. They're, they're in this hotel that I'm staying in. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's a gift 
to be around people who give you that window into this world that's sometimes as good as reading a novel, sometimes maybe better than reading a novel. But um, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so that's basically, um, that's basically it, I think. Um, Are you planning on writing anything, anything else? Have you got any other writing projects? Well, I was, I was looking at an interview with Stephen King the other day, and he said something very interesting. He said, look, make a pot of tea, try to get six pages in a day. Don't try to plot your, your story. Let the story take you where it goes. Be open to, to where you're being led. And a good idea sticks around. And I thought that that was interesting because an idea, there, I have an idea that's sticking around that won't go away. And that I keep thinking, mm, that would be a nice moment. Yeah, that would be a good thing to add there. And it's a novel about something that I've experienced myself, but it's a novel about uh, immigration and what it means to be not from the place that you're in and how, um, how that affects your, your spirit. The idea of being an exile or an immigrant or an immigrant and of having their past life there somewhere. Um, and one of the areas that I feel has not been documented terribly well, but I think contains great richness, is the world of immigration into Britain in the 60s. Those people who came from Ireland in search of a better life and... Um, how they took their identity with them. In fact, in many cases, never lost that identity at all. Whereas Irish, the day they died is the day they, they came. But what it was like, for example, the character that I'm thinking about is a guy who's worked on the land, as a great many Irish people did, literally digging in the ground for stuff and uh, on a farm, and then is in a tunnel, you know, in, in, in London, to go from the sky to being in concrete. Mm. Uh, me seems, um, you know, it, it's just an idea that that I'm toying with emigration, immigration, and exile, which I think is still very pertinent to the world we're living in today. Yeah, my my granddad came over from uh, Belfast, and he was he worked in London at the, at the fire brigade during the Blitz, mm. and then I think it it was very traumatic, and he came back to Belfast, and uh, they said, okay, you can go to Liverpool or you can go to Barrow in Furness, and he thought, well, I've mm. never heard of Barrow in Furness, so neither has Hitler, mm. so I'll go there. And when he arrived, the day he arrived, there was the first and last. Um, bombing of Barrow in Furnace by the Germans. So it's just like, bloody hell. <laughs> you know, can't get away from the bastards. <laughs> it was, uh... and, then, and then his brother won the lottery to go to Canada. Um, and it was the lottery was just like a one-way ticket. It was just like, off you go. You know, you're out of there. It's kind of just yeah. a way of getting rid of the poor, basically. Basically. Yes, they did the same to Australia, the £10 assisted package. Well, listen, I have to go and get this train back yeah. down to Wales. I hope, I hope I gave you enough to... Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much, Gabriel. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, uh, John. It was, uh, it was lovely talking to you. And sorry I have to jump off so, so quickly, but um, yeah. I see the car down there waiting for me. But... Um, uh, Yes, it was lovely to talk to you, and thank you for reading the book, and thank you for your um, your you know your considered reaction to it. it. It does mean a lot when somebody reads the book and and gets it, you know. Yeah. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Gabriel. and uh, be in touch soon. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did. Um, it was extremely generous of Gabriel to give us his time, to give me his time. I, I think his book's amazing, and I genuinely recommend it. As I said during the interview, in a way that I mean, it's always awkward when you... Uh, I don't know, it's, maybe it's an English thing, maybe it's an English-Irish thing of... Um, giving people compliments it always feels very very difficult to do it without feeling like you're gushing or 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 what have you um but his book is is genuinely good piece of writing he's not the first actor to to write something of literary merit you know there is a long tradition of actor writers from Dirk Bogart Richard Burton an amazing writer who 
was one of um, Gabriel's first co-stars in the TV series uh, Wagner. Um, so his his book really does stand up to that kind of um, comparison. Uh, I would advise everybody to get it. Thanks go to Ellie Atkins for doing the music, Ali Harwood for helping out with the artwork, and thanks to everybody for listening. Until the next episode, please take care. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi. I'm- Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.